Hello and welcome to Red Envelope, a series of Rhetorics podcast episodes focused on innovation in Asia. The rise of Asia, particularly over the last five years or so within the fintech space, has been phenomenal. Several new business models have emerged. One of the key impact areas of fintech is Islamic fintech. And today we are delighted to have one of the global superstars of Islamic fintech, Omar Manchi. Uh, Omar is managing director at Ethos Crowd and co-founder of Ethos Ventures. Ethos Crowd and Ethos Ventures are um, are based out of Southeast Asia. So Ethos Crowd is a crowdfunding platform for real estate transactions, and Ethos Venture, uh, a sister organization of Ethos Crowd, focuses on building startup success stories in the Islamic fintech space. Umar is clearly one of the who's who of the Islamic fintech space, and he's had a successful career, or rather an interesting career, I should say. Uh, he started off as a coffee shop owner at Orchard Street, Singapore. He moved on to sales in a healthcare firm and set up uh, set up their offices in Indonesia as, in Indonesia as a partner. Um, he worked in asset management um, after that for about four years before moving into Islamic fintech. And all along, um, all these years, Umar and his family um, have been providing education in parts of uh, Southeast Asia as well. Um, hopefully that that covered it all, uh, Umar, and we're delighted to have you on our show. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, interesting uh, to be on this show. It's the first time in this kind of show from your part of the world. Great. Uh, so before we uh, kind of start off with the actual uh, getting into the uh, show itself, but just wanted to kind of uh, brief the audience on what Islamic fintech is, because um, we all have heard of Islamic fintech in, in some shape or form, but uh, many of us don't don't understand the ethical aspect of it um, and how how the, the, the structures behind the, uh, the system is different from traditional financial services, uh, which uh, which is uh, largely predominant in the West. So if you can talk, talk give us a few minutes of uh, what Islamic finance and Islamic fintech is and how big a market that is, that would be really helpful. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I'll focus more maybe on the concept of Islamic finance. Um, I mean, fintech per se technology is agnostic to, to ethics or religion. It's about how you apply it. So Islamic fintech is is uh, the newer iteration of Islamic finance uh, enabled by technology. Yeah, but in essence, uh, Islamic finance, it may seem strange to, to those to non-Muslims or those who are not familiar uh, with Islam um, on why finance needs to be you know uh, seen through the lens of religion. But uh, essentially, I, I believe it's, it's easier to understand and accept when you look at it as another set of ethical standards. Uh, today, you have different ethical standards and, uh, and uh, those standards are based on either theories or, or concepts or a consensus uh, among a group, a group of people, uh, typically led by researchers and, and things like that. But for Islamic finance, the, the key differentiator, I would say, or, or what makes it maybe unique today, uh, is that it is based on principles and uh, rules uh, that uh, came to humanity thousands of years ago at the beginning of uh, of Islam or when Islam came in this form. So uh, the ethics are based on uh, religious um, content or religious texts, the Quran and the uh, the holy book of the Quran, 
as well as the practices of uh, our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So the ethics, I would say, uh, but essentially they are universal ethics. Of course, there are some quirks that are unique to you know the the Muslim way of seeing things, uh, but in general, it's it's universal, uh, and um, it centers around the concept of justice and fairness in transactions between people, uh, in uh, specifically in this case, uh, commercial dealings. I would say there's two types of of screening uh, Islamic finance at the basic uh, application is a negative screening kind of approach where we ensure things that are not allowed or are not uh, encouraged are not present. Yeah? So there's two aspects to that. The first aspect is about the nature of the business or the activity uh, that the financing is involved in or the financing enables. Uh, and in that case, it's very clear-cut. There are certain sectors or certain activities that are not allowed, uh, mainly dealing in things like alcohol, uh, gambling, um, adult material, pornography, uh, these kind of things. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, typically this is considered to be you know, universal uh, values uh, or principles. Yeah, so that's on one aspect. These things are not allowed. And for example, I cannot uh, do uh, financing for cafe that has alcohol because alcohol is not allowed is is seen to be or is is understood to be something that's not good for society yeah, so that's in terms of the nature of the business or the activity on the other aspect on the other hand uh, like i said there are two pillars uh, the other aspect is about the method of the financing and in this case the main uh, concern or the main issue is about the use of or the charging of interest on money. Yeah. So in Islam, uh, in Islamic finance, interest is strictly prohibited, and that's probably one of the main um, quirks or what was different uh, about the Islamic approach to financing. Uh, today, the world is based on on interest, yeah? and 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 financing everybody assumes involves interest. So the reason why interest is not allowed is because uh, interest is something that creates unfairness and uh, creates uh, inequality in society. And if you look back at history, whether it's modern day history or just before that, we see uh, as soon as the financial system started becoming developed, insurance has been used as a tool uh, for good as well as for bad. Uh, but if you look at the macro scale today, um, a lot of countries are in debt. And uh, that debt is what keeps them uh, dead with interest. And that is what keeps these countries from developing properly. That's at a macro level. At a micro level, we have a lot of issues with debt and credit, uh, people stretching themselves, uh, going under, going bankrupt, and so on. So the root cause of all these things is interest from debt. So in Islam, that's not allowed. In Islamic finance, uh, interest is not allowed at all. Uh, and in most of the major um, Abrahamic religions, uh, usury, which is punitive interest, is also not allowed. So um, that's the main difference. So how, how do we make money then? How do we profit? The, it's, it's something that comes from, uh, it can come from profits. You can share profits, you can share income, you can charge fees and so on.
thanks for the uh, Omar. I mean, one of the points that I would like to add here is, um, although you mentioned it's a potentially religious uh, thinking, I think it's it's quite cultural as well. Um, because uh, one of the things, I mean, when I first got my, I mean, when I got my first credit card, this was about twenty odd years ago, um, um, uh, or slightly less than that. Uh, um, my my uncle, who's got an MBA degree, he's a chartered accountant. The first thing he told me was, "Why did you go for a credit card?" And he was like so upset with me going for a credit card, and he just didn't like me taking a kind of a, uh, taking that approach. Uh, at that early in my life, so I think it's a it's a cultural aspect um, angle to it as well. Yep. Fascinating. Um, it's certainly something different than uh, what what we typically do do out in the West. So let's shift gear a little bit um, with the intro that earlier when we first started the episode. So you had quite an interesting journey, right? Going from being a um, in, in different industry. Um, doing different things, teaching asset management and, and all that. And now you are in Islamic finance. So can you walk us through your journey? How did all of that came about? Because it's, it's quite different. And, and in the end, what do you enjoy the most? Yeah, it's been a long journey. I mean, um, half my life I've been an entrepreneur from the age of 18 uh, to date. And um, I started from before I was in university in Singapore. All males need to go for compulsory military training or national service, they call it. So, and I was quite lucky in national service. Um, I performed very well. I was uh, you know, a good performer, basically. And I was given a high position at a young age. I was made an inspector of police in Singapore. Now, uh, that's all fine and good. But um, at the same time, I was also itching to, to do more things outside of uh, that scope. So when I was 18, uh, while I was still in the police force, I started doing some side online businesses and started learning about sales and started learning about marketing. Um, after that, I went into business school, National University Singapore Business School, where I survived for a year uh, and I left. I, I was supposed to go back, but I never did. Um, yeah, sometimes people remind me, why don't you go study again? And I'm like, I, I really don't see the need to. Uh, based on my journey. So from there, I went, um, I actually went into sales, as you mentioned, uh, started selling some uh, high technology healthcare products uh, from Japan and, and other things. And um, that continued and I moved to Indonesia. I had, uh, from Singapore, I moved to Indonesia when I was 21. I lived there for about five, six years. It was very interesting. It was a, it's a totally different world from Singapore which is very small, modern, you know, everything works, everything is proper and expensive. But when you go to Indonesia, it's really, really, you know, the Wild West, uh, the Wild East maybe. Um, things are, are so fluid, things are so different, there's so much opportunity, yet so much uh, risk also if you don't understand what you're doing. So I lived there and I stayed there for about five, uh, five years or so. Uh, and I, I, I would say I achieved a degree of success. We had uh, a few branches throughout Indonesia. We were making good money. Um, and then um, very quickly, that business actually crumbled after about six, seven years of, of building it up and dedicating everything I had to it. Um, why it went down was a combination of bad timing, bad luck, and bad intentions from other people. Uh, so essentially, I lost, I lost money there. <clears throat> I had I had just reinvested in the business, 
uh, when we had supply problems and other things. So then we had to shut down and I lost uh, quite a lot of money. I had to go back to Singapore. I was about, I think, 27 years old. And um, at that age, under heavy debt, uh, it's not really a good situation. Uh, but I would say, as an entrepreneur, you need to be ready for these kind of things. And uh, I'm typically someone who is very positive and uh, not, not an emotional guy. You don't get upset by things. So I think that's a very important trait of an entrepreneur to go with it, to go through whatever obstacles and problems. So anyway, I went back to Singapore and uh, that's where I started reflecting on how I did my business and how I led my life. And then the, the realization came um, and I realized that my business was a lot of it was based on debt and based on interest. Yeah? Uh, the trigger for that was I had a nice car in Singapore, a sports car. You know, young guys with money, you'll, you'll get a nice car. And that car was repossessed by the bank. And the bank, from being my friend, started becoming a, a, very, um, a very fierce enemy, <laughs> if I could put it as that. Yeah, so, you know, I was slapped with all the different charges and high interest and everything. So that's what actually brought me to Islamic finance. That's where I started to see that, oh, these things are not allowed. I never knew in my own religion. Yeah, I was brought up with religion in my family, but the, the finance aspect of it was not really uh, educated or, or we were not thought about it because, you know, in Singapore, it also doesn't really exist. So then, um, so that's how I found Islamic finance. And I started developing a passion in it. And then I went into um, Amana Asset Management to try and, and build up the industry in Singapore uh, together with some friends. Yeah. Uh, after some time, we encountered a lot of roadblocks trying to develop finance at you know, the, the mainstream level, which is a lot of regulatory requirements, especially in a, in a country like Singapore. So then uh, what we did was we just started to build a community around us, people who were also enthusiastic about Islamic finance. Uh, naturally, mostly Muslims, but also non-Muslims came on board. And uh, once um, the, the, the group became larger, we started to invest together in projects, mainly in Indonesia. Yeah, So that's how it started. We were um, a private investment club, a group of people investing together. Uh, by that time, I had recovered from most of my debt and cleared my debt. Yeah. Um, and um, a few years later, we went online. And essentially, investment crowdfunding is a private investment club that's public and online. Yeah. yeah. So that's the journey. That's how I, I reached this point. And the past three and a half, four years of running this business has been uh, a roller coaster. Also, a lot of highs, a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, fulfillment, but also a lot of challenges when you're trying to do something new in this part of the world, and um, nobody understood or nobody understands what you're trying to do at the start. And today, those who do understand, there are those uh, who want to support, and there are also those who want to see how they can exploit, you know, uh, having the ability to, to raise funds and to disburse funds. Thanks for that, Omar. That's uh, that's a really interesting ride you've been through. Um, let's let's take a slight um, a digression from uh, from that and look at the 
uh, Islamic fintech market uh, slightly broadly, right? So we have the fastest growing Islamic fintech market in Europe. So with, with UK, I think it's about uh, 5 billion. Uh, Islamic finance market, of course, is 5 billion. And, uh, and uh, uh, Europe, I hear, is about five times that the size. Uh, and it's the fastest growing in the world. Um, and you have the already super big market in Malaysia. So, and, and I'm sure you've you've got uh, friends between these regions, and and uh, you share uh, best practices, um, industry uh, industry insights, and all that. So, from your perspective, how are these two ecosystems placed to learn from each other? How do they compare, and and what are the what are the uh, real compa- comparables between the two how, how are they how do they how do you assess the two well we do have um a group and an alliance called the islamic fintech alliance where we have about 10 founders from across the globe um one from the us a few from europe and, and from the rest of the world so we do communicate quite often and i do have trips to europe also occasionally i just went to madrid uh, two weeks ago for a conference I would say the main difference in Islamic uh, for for Islamic finance um, would be the people. Firstly, uh, the the people who are who are running it and the the people who are being served by it, and uh, of course, secondly, is also the context and the environment of of that country. So, in terms of people, uh, I would say that in the US and in the UK, uh, there's a lot more exposure to. Uh, ethical finance, there's more exposure to also fintech, there's more exposure to new things basically uh, because these are developed uh, countries with developed financial systems. So people are savvier, people are more in the know and I would say also that there's a a tendency of more professionals becoming entrepreneurs whereas in in my part of the world in Southeast Asia which is mostly developing countries, is dominated by developing countries, um, you have professionals who remain professionals and you have people who try to build up something else as an entrepreneur. So there's a little bit of difference there. And uh, that's why we can see in FinTech, there's actually more startups coming out of uh, the UK in the Islamic space compared to Malaysia, which is you know a leader in, in the Islamic economy. Uh, however, in Indonesia, um, uh, specifically for FinTech, it is by far the biggest Islamic fintech um, market right now in terms of number of players uh, because of the second point I mentioned, the context. The need there is so high. Uh, there, there's so many financing gaps and there's so many problems to solve. So naturally, people start looking for solutions. Yeah, um, yeah But again, back to your earlier point on the growth side of things, uh, Europe is growing very fast for Islamic finance. I believe because of the spread of awareness, people are more aware of the differences and the need to, I mean, especially Muslims, uh, the need to adhere to our own uh, principles. And uh, a surprising and and, um, very uh, interesting development for me also, when I was in Madrid, I met a lot of, uh, we had a conference there at IE Business School, um, and there were there was a large portion of, of the audience who were non-Muslims who were interested in the ethics of Islamic finance. So this convergence between ethical finance and, and Islamic finance, or, or, or these similarities uh, between the two, has also created more demand in Europe. Yeah, but in the long run, I feel that definitely the market is in a country like Indonesia with 260 million people, 90% Muslims. 
hungry for new things, hungry for development. Uh, it's growing very, very fast there also. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. take that theme and continue on right because a lot of times when we're talking about financial services development innovation the next step we're all talking about how do we surface the digital economy how do we create a framework right for digital mm -hmm. services and and that is going to be a key driver for growth for basically every country because we're going digital so in yeah. your context in terms of the islamic digital framework how is the development going what do you need to do for mass adoption in, let's say, you know, Indonesia that you're just talking about the needs and the population that's there? Are the banks prepared? Well, um, banks specifically have, I would say, a, a limited role in, in Indonesia. Uh, there's a lot of unbanked, a lot of underbanked. In Malaysia, it's very developed. Uh, Islamic banking here is very, very developed. Uh, just one nugget of information for you that, that you may not have heard of. In Malaysia, the economy, the, the Islamic banking industry is very developed. It's considered the best or the most mature in the world. And uh, in, in one of the main Islamic banks here, uh, total Islamic deposits that's in the bank, more than half of it comes from non-Muslims, purely because of the features and, and, uh, and the you know, different attributes of the, the product or the deposit product. Yeah, so that's, uh, that shows that it cuts across religion. It's about the features and the ethics behind it. And if you subscribe to it, you like it, and you know, everybody is welcome. It's just like halal food where anyone can eat a kebab, for example. Yeah. Now, um, in Indonesia, I would say that the alternative finance space is, is really, really fast. Uh, P2P. Uh, debt-based financing or term-based or project-based financing online or sometimes you call it marketplace lending uh, in Indonesia last year reached 20 billion dollars and that's a huge jump from the previous year which was a huge jump from the previous year so the adoption is already happening the disruption is already taking place uh, and when I say disruption is disruption uh, of course positive disruption to the lives of the people not disruption to the banks because the banks are not serving these people uh, enough in the first place. There's so much room for, for fintech uh, to grow. Yeah, so uh, I think what's needed is to have a greater push and um, uh, push from the government as well as push, push from other stakeholders, especially religious leaders. Uh, there needs to be a strong alignment between the religious leaders who are the spiritual leaders of, of their communities or their followers and the entrepreneurs and the business owners who are you know, pushing the boundaries uh, and going into new areas. Uh, and, and I would say most of us, or all of us, hopefully have the right intentions also. Yeah, but sometimes when you go to more traditional or conservative uh, groups who are not used to new things, they tend to be quite defensive at the start. 
Uh, I like to call this inertia. There's a lot of inertia in the Islamic economy uh, because you know the, some people are, uh, tend to be very traditional or, or conservative, and they don't want, they don't really embrace change so fast. So this mindset needs to change. And uh, what's driving the growth is is the young people, the the millennials. Yeah, uh, on our platform. Uh, we receive investments from around the world to invest in social housing in Indonesia, you know, invest with profit. And uh, we see that the bulk of our investors from outside the region, uh, I mean, there are two groups. You have the older crowd that puts in bigger amounts of money, 50,000, 100,000, and so on. Uh, but the, most of the transactions come from young people. Uh, and, and these young people, it spreads very quickly to their friends. Right? The network effect is there. Yeah, so what needs to be done is, I feel, is for the young people to step up and to push it harder. Uh, we can already see it moving, we can already feel the effects and, and we can already identify the trend. Just need to keep going in the same trajectory. You know what I really love with, with our discussion for the last 15-20 minutes is there are a lot of things that you say that just absolutely resonate with me. And I'm, I'm not even Muslim, right? From <laughs> when you first started talking about technology should be agnostic to religion, totally by that, to what you just talked about, you know, we, we need to embrace change. We need to change the mindset and, and we need to take on new things. And, and I think that is the same sentiment. It cuts across any culture, cuts across any country, religion, whatever beliefs and thoughts and generations that you have. Same as, you know, out in the West, as a matter of the US or UK, I think, you know, and across all industry, just not, not just banking, but all industries in general, we are facing a lot of changes, right? Society in general has a lot of changes, a lot of challenges ahead, and, and we need to be able to work together to embrace it. So. I just thought I wanted to say I just love that. I love what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not saying anything new. A lot of people have similar views. And this is just what I observe on the ground. And uh, I think things are very encouraging right now. Um, notwithstanding any, any issues uh, with you know, Islamophobia and all that, this part of the world is very clear. No, nobody has any problems, maybe because there's a lot of Muslims here. Uh, but the cool thing is when I, did, when I went to Europe, Everybody was very welcome. You know, I have a huge beard. Some people find that intimidating. <laughs> but yeah, when I was there, people were very nice, very friendly, and they, they sincerely wanted to know more about Islamic finance. So on that topic, Omar, um, I have a question because um, we keep talking about financial inclusion all the time on, on our podcast. And, uh, and, and even with, um, I'm sure you, uh, you're aware of Yielders, um, one of my portfolio firms. And uh, the, the firm, basically, we, uh, we, we often talk about uh, the percentage of non-Islamic uh, users of Yielders and, and that being a key KPI to how much uh, Islamic fintech is kind of uh, uh, known or evangelized within um, within the Western audience. So one of the things mm -hmm. that uh, one of the things that we often discuss about is how Islamic finance in general took off after the 2008 crisis, when when money managers yep. were looking for other alternative options, more sustainable financial products, and Islamic finance was there 
offering solutions for those uh, those uh, those people in need and that's where it took off and today it's a 2.1 trillion dollar uh, market so one of the key takeaways from all these things is it's very important to engage the non-muslim community to really make it um, 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 a parallel financial services world and what is being what are your thoughts from from within the muslim community and um, what are the thoughts in terms of the islamic finance community um, how are you planning to do that uh, or is that is that an intent to do that yes so um, islamic finance and for us especially we we have um, this interest and and, and this uh, want this desire uh, to spread Islamic finance to as many people as possible, Muslims and non-Muslims. And um, how we hope to achieve that is, um, I mean, for Muslims, there's two approaches. One is faith-based and the other is logic-based, right? Some people are faith-first, logic-second, some people are logic-first, faith-second. So we share both to Muslims um, based on our religion, based on our beliefs, based on our scriptures and texts and so on. This is how it's supposed to be. This is what we were told. You know, so if you if this is if this is the faith that you subscribe to, uh, take a look at this and try and understand it. Yeah. Then, uh, but of course, for non-Muslims, is is logic, is logic, uh, and logic here. I mean, the the ethics, the impact on society, and so on. Um, something that I want to share is that I've observed interesting fintech coming out of the West, coming out of the US and the UK. And um, I'm, I'm quite sure that, that the, the founders of these platforms or these solutions uh, did not study Islamic finance before doing it. They just did something or they just implemented solutions that made sense. Yeah? And uh, when we look at these solutions, and I bring this up a lot when I meet you know, Islamic scholars here, I tell them, look at this model in the West. For example, Lemonade, right? the, the InsurTech platform. Look at this model and how it works. And after just a few minutes of watching the video, the, the Sharia or Islamic scholar here will say, oh, this is Takaful, which is the Islamic variant of, of insurance. It's very similar. So my point is that a lot of the, for example, crowdfunding, revenue sharing, crowdfunding, profit sharing, profit sharing crowdfunding, these are all very, very fundamentally Islamic, although the intention is not you know, to be Islamic in that sense. Uh, but the principles and the approach and the, even the model is very, very similar to established Islamic models. Now, uh, let me go on a little bit more, if you don't mind. So with FinTech, these models can come out. Previously, in the very rigid um, you know, banking-based uh, banking financial model uh, that we used to have, even Islamic finance had to... You know, had to um, conform, uh, had to compromise to some extent to, to fit into the frameworks of the, the, the incumbent system. Yeah, but with fintech today, you can be very creative in implementing new structures. And that's the opportunity for Islamic finance. We can implement structures and, and logic that has been wisdom that has been with us for thousands of years. And uh, I think the opportunity also is for non-Muslims to look at Islamic finance for some of these solutions and implement it in your own way. You need not call it Islamic, right? Just implement it in your own way. Yeah? Um, an analogy would be the halal industry, halal food. Halal food entails, you know, being uh, not cruel to animals and, and so on. 
uh, and uh, being clean and so on. Yeah. So uh, a lot of non-Muslims in in different countries look for halal food, look for halal products because they also subscribe to that. Yeah, it's the same thing or, or similar thing. I can't agree more. I, th I think one of the things we always believe in, fundamentally across societies, across cultures, across genders, across age, or however you want to dissect the society or groups or boxes, I think we have more alike than we would like to know or than we yes. would like to admit. So um, kudos on that. So now I know that we're not supposed to pick favors. Um, but if we have to, are there a few startups in the space that you like or you want to talk about and, and, and why? Uh, obviously, I like our one product, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a few others also, um, especially in, in Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, where most of my activities are. There are a few very interesting startups. Um, one I want to highlight is uh, iGrow, iGrow.Asia. iGrow is also P2P crowdfunding uh, and uh, it, the investments there are in agriculture, in farmers. So you, when you invest, you invest, uh, let's say, a small amount and that is pulled together with the crowd and that goes to the farmer. So this actually helps the farmer to get uh, more farming inputs and uh, from there, more cycles of, um, of yield. And from there, you know, over time to build up uh, his life. Yeah, to, to break out of poverty most of the time. So that's one. Uh, I grew that Asia is doing very well. And right now, they have a strong focus on uh, blockchain uh, to ensure that from farm to fork at every step, things are proper. Yeah. Um, there's also Capital Boost. Capital is for K capitalboost.com, uh, which funds small and medium enterprises. And um, the, the cool thing about, about Capital Boost is the term, the term of investment duration is very short. Two months, three months, four months, you get your return. So in this, in this way, you can test it out, uh, take a short-term project, you know, put $500 or $200. And if you're happy, you can invest again larger amounts after that. So that's Capital Boost. It's snowballing very fast. Uh, there are some uh, SMEs that have done more than 10 rounds of, of financing so when, and, and paid back successfully with profits. So when they come for the 11th, 12th or 3rd round, uh, everybody wants to invest in them. You know, it gets snapped up in an hour sometimes or less than that. Yeah, so that's Capital Boost. And the first one was iGrow. Uh, for our own platforms, we actually have two platforms. Uh, FIS Crowd, e -T -H -I -S crowd .com. Now that platform focuses on uh, what we mentioned earlier, social housing in Indonesia. So let me just go into a little bit of detail. What we are doing is not buying houses. We are just providing construction finance most of the time to developers so they can speed up uh, and, and build up more houses. Indonesia has a shortage of 14 million houses. And uh, what we do is we plug in into a government program which uh, facilitates uh, the purchase of houses by low-income individuals. One house is about eight to 12,000 US dollars. 
uh, typically a land, small landed property for a small family. And uh, what this is how that's how the system works. We provide a little bit of money, about five percent of the project, and uh, over a period of the year, that money is utilized for construction. And at the end of the period, uh, the the house is sold uh, with the government banked mortgage, uh, subsidized mortgage, and we get our returns. So it's a win-win-win for everyone. Uh, we also have this our second platform, which is a newer platform called Global Sadaka. Sadaka is uh, it means uh, charity or, or it means giving, yeah. And uh, Global Sadaka basically it's a charity crowdfunding platform. I guess the key differentiator for us is that we work a lot uh, with corporates here to help them to distribute their funds, you know, to to projects that uh, to campaigns that are accountable and transparent and so on. Yeah. So we do especially uh, relief a lot of relief efforts. You know, Indonesia has had some disasters. We do empowerment programs. Like right now, we have a series of very popular campaigns uh, to help uh, single moms at risk in Malaysia to empower them with uh, tools and uh, to help them build up their small businesses. So these are all the different things that I see in, the, in this space that's interesting. Uh, earlier on also, there was mention of Yildiz, which is not from this part of the world. It's from the UK. Yildiz is really cool. Uh, they do property crowdfunding. And uh, another notable uh, startup, which is growing very rapidly right now, is uh, originally from the US. It's called Wahed Invest, which is a robo-advisor Sharia compliant. And uh, they are growing very, very fast. They are already in this part of the world. Uh, they expanded from the US to the UK, and now they are, they are expanding in the Middle East and uh, in Southeast Asia. Great. Now we've talked about farms that are moving from the US into Southeast Asia and you have a 2.1 trillion market to conquer. So what are your plans uh, to take over the world? <laughs> well, there are many plans. Um, I believe that for crowdfunding to really make a difference, uh, it needs to, or it, it should be global. It doesn't need to. Indonesia alone has enough scale for, for the business to be viable and to grow really big. But what I really want to do is, or what, what we want to accomplish, is to have a global ecosystem. Uh, right now, there are many, many roadblocks and barriers from regulations to, to funding and so on. Uh, but we are working on it and we have our plan. And uh, hopefully, sometime next year, we will be able to accomplish some breakthroughs and be able to open up a more global-based business. Uh, when I say global, I mean we can... We can then uh, facilitate people from here investing there and people from there investing here and in any other country, right? all on one platform. So that does not really exist yet, uh, but that's something we are working towards. That's great, Omar. So when you're in London next time, we should catch up for a coffee, uh, for sure. So thank you so much for all the uh, detailed information you provided about the ecosystems and what you guys are doing in, uh, in, the, in the ecosystem. Uh, it's been very helpful. And thanks for uh, making time for us. Very, very nice. Very enlightening, too. Yes. Thank you.